You know, guys, when I, you know, guys, when I, when I die, when I die, I have a plan. I have a plan. I want to go, I want to go peacefully, quietly in my quietly, sleep, like my grandfather, my sleep, like my grandfather, not screaming, yelling not and terrified like the passengers of his car. Like the passengers of his car. All right, yeah, yeah, okay, off color. Right, yeah, yeah, okay, off color. I know, I know. There's nothing. I know. There's, there's nothing, nothing actually funny there's about falling asleep at the wheel. Um, um, I kind of have secondhand have secondhand knowledge of that. See, my family, see, my, my parents, family, and my siblings, my parents and my siblings were in an automotive accident about 13 years ago. They had all traveled to a nearby town in Montana. It was Sunday afternoon. It was warm. It was hot. They were coming back. They were coming back. And sorry about that. Yeah, and, um, and all the way back, my younger, yeah, brother was the driving, back, my younger brother was driving, and he fell asleep at the wheel. And he fell asleep at the wheel. And no one noticed because no one noticed everyone because else, everyone in the car was also asleep. The car was also asleep. So it's a Montana. So, it's a Montana. Um, um, uh, thank you, Hannah, for helping uh, thank with you, that. Hannah, um, so it's a Montana freeway. Um, so it's a Montana freeway. Average speed seventy-five Average miles speed, an hour. Seventy-five if miles an hour. You drive the speed limit. I don't think my brother quite was. He had cruise control on. So the car continued so the car to go continued at pace even after he fell asleep. Even after he fell asleep. And there's not there's not concrete medians in that particular highway. So the car drifted out of their lane across the center line. Then across one or two lanes of oncoming traffic. Went down an embankment and then hit. Another road that was coming into the highway, and the car was launched over 70 feet in the air. In the air, because falling asleep, because falling asleep at the wheel, at the is wheel dangerous. Is dangerous. And whether it's behind and whether the wheel of a car, the wheel or if it's or you know, like the banker in Europe who fell asleep at his desk, and either his nose or finger hit the keys just right that he transferred 222,222,222 euros into a woman's account. No, she didn't get to keep it. No, she didn't get to keep it. Falling asleep is a dangerous thing. And, and for the rest of us, I mean, we and just know the that there are times where maybe we're not asleep, but we're not aware to what's going on in life. We've missed the opportunities. People were in danger, and we weren't aware of it. And many of us, even in our relationship with God, we can just be asleep to the reality of God at work in the world. We can be unaware of what he's doing and out of sync. And, and, and this morning, we're going to be in Acts morning, chapter 12, and I am, I am so excited. This is just so one of my favorite little stories in all of Scripture, because the Scriptures are amazing. It's the story of God and the world that He created and His interactions with humanity and His plan to save it all through His Son, Jesus. But it's not generally comedy. It's not funny in an American sort of way. Except, Except when it is. is. And, and this morning, morning is one of those great little, little moments in the scripture. scripture. I'm just I'm excited to share with you. So, so I don't have the uh, scriptures up on the screen. We're just going to read it. If you need a Bible, there's a stack of them in the back corner. Uh, and I welcome you to grab one or to pull up an app on your phone. And, and let's just read. This is from Acts chapter 12, uh, verse 1. And it begins with about that time. So... You know, you know, Jesus, Jesus has been crucified, buried, buried and, and then raised from the dead over a period of 40, year, 40 days. He appeared to his disciples. They ate with him. They, you know, they talked with him. And then he went away. He ascended into heaven. Ten days later, the Holy Spirit came and the church was born. And just recently, God did a new thing and these outsider Gentiles were brought into the family of God. 
people, people weren't expecting it. it. And, and there's, there's this large church of several hundred miles north of Jerusalem in Antioch that was birthed, uh, made up of both Jew and Gentile, and they have sent Paul and Barnabas down with some relief money to help out the local Christians in Jerusalem. So it's a time when all of the leadership of this Christian church is concentrated in Jerusalem, and it's about that time that Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So this is a really dark time for the church. James, he's one of the big three. You know, who did Jesus bring with him all the time? Peter, James, and John. That James. And now he's gone. All of a sudden, without any warning, he's just gone. And now Peter is arrested. This is not looking good. See, this was during the days of unleavened bread. And when Herod had seized Peter, he put him in prison. And he delivered him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. And so Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. It's, it's a dark time. There's that last glimmer of hope, but people are praying. And, and that's, that's, that's all they got. Because Peter is in a maximum security prison right now. Right, a Roman, Roman squad was four soldiers. So four squads of 16 soldiers whose only job is to keep Peter under guard. It's round-the-clock surveillance. They have this guy in prison, bound not with one, but with two chains, with fresh, awake, ready to fight soldiers coming in every couple hours. He's in a cell He's with sentries cell, at the door in a larger prison a complex larger within, prison iron gates. within iron gates. He's not He's getting, getting out. out. In the words of C. Thrupio, he has like a 3,720 3, to 1, you know, one chance of survival you know, here. Chance of survival if that. If He's that. doomed. He's doomed. But the church is praying. But the church is praying. And now when Herod was about now, to Herod bring him out, bring on him that very night, Night. Peter was sleeping. Peter was sleeping. Come on, like Peter, what are Come you on, doing? Like Peter, You're sleeping. You doing? You're going to be executed tomorrow. Yeah, he's tomorrow. sleeping. Yeah, he's between sleeping. two soldiers, two soldiers bound, with bound with two chains, with two chains and sentries before the door. Before the were door, guarding the prison. Were guarding the prison. And behold, and behold, an angel of the an Lord angel stood the next Lord to him. Stood next to him. And a light shone. And a light shone in the cell. In the cell. And the angel and struck the angel Peter on the side. Struck Peter Whack! on the side. Whack! And woke him, saying, woke him, get up, saying, quickly. Get up, quickly. And the chains, and the chains fell off his hands. Fell off his hands. And the, angel, and the angel said to him, dress yourself, put on your sandals, get dressed. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. I get the sense the angel is a lot like me in the mornings. He's in a hurry. He's like, come on, move. And, and Peter's moving. And he went out and he followed him. And he didn't know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. So Peter's awake. He's just not all there. He doesn't understand this hasn't, he doesn't know this is actually happening. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, whether that's the 
the two centuries, or if that's a whole separate guard, you know, making sure that this Peter doesn't pull a prison escape. I don't know. But they came to the iron gate leading into the city, and it opened for them of its own accord. And they went out, and they went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. And when Peter <laughs> came to himself, like, he said, Now I am sure the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. It's the middle of the night. He's in a darkened street, having just escaped from a, or escaped, ha, huh, he was let out, of a maximum security prison. And he has this little monologue in the middle of a darkened street. And then, when he realized that, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John. Like, don't get caught. All right, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where there were many gathered and were praying. I love it. Peter's asleep, the church is up, and they're praying. And forgive me, this is one of my favorite scenes in all of Scripture, so I'm going to play with it a little bit. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. This is how I imagine it going. Peter, dark, night, just escaped from prison. There's a bunch of Roman soldiers that really want you dead right now. Who is it? It's Peter. I'm, I'm sorry, who is it? It's Peter. Okay. And recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she didn't open the door. But she ran in, interrupted the prayer meeting, and reported, Peter's standing at the gate. And they said to her, ha, you're out of your mind, crazy woman. But she kept insisting that it was so. No, he's at the gate. And they kept saying, maybe it's this angel. You're crazy. That's impossible. It can't be Peter. Rhoda, what... What are you doing while we are praying? Like, what's, what's going on? And they have this back and forth. And meanwhile, Peter continues knocking. The wanted fugitive on the run, outside, vulnerable. Let me in. And meanwhile, in the house, a great hullabaloo is happening as people are going back and forth. It's Peter at the gate. Nah, you're crazy. And finally, <laughs> when they open the door, they see him and they're amazed. Ah! It's you, but motioning with his hand to be silent. He uh, described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the other brothers. And then he departed and went to another place, which is my Lucan version of saying he went to hide because they're going to be looking for him. <sighs> Sorry. I love it. I love it. It's just... Ah, oh, it's so good. I'm so glad this happened. Now, now, when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. Uh, guys, we have a problem. What do you mean you lost him? <laughs> he was right there. You were chained to him. You guys, you were guarding the gate. What? Yeah. And, and then after Herod searched for him and didn't find him, 
I mean, Herod's a king, so I imagine he probably sent, you know, a band of soldiers to go inquire. But I love picturing Herod being so disturbed by the fact that Peter got out of this impossible situation that he himself came down to look in the prison. Like, what do you mean you lost him? And after he searched for him and he didn't find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and he spent time there. Now, a little bit more about Herod. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. So Tyre and Sidon, it's like Astoria and Portland. They're port cities, and they rely on the Willamette Valley, eastern Washington, and eastern Oregon to actually bring food in. So um, they depend on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, and he looked swell. He took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. Big fancy speech. And the people were shouting, oh, it's the voice of a god, not a man. You know, we're not worthy. You're amazing. The voice of a god, not a man. And Herod's like, yeah. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and died. What? Yeah, he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Oh, okay. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. I, okay. Worms aside, I love this story. It's just fun. It's like, I don't know, Ocean's Eleven or the Italian. It's a heist story. And I just, I can't imagine, but Luke and everyone else just having this great chuckle as he's listening to the stories of, you know, examining eyewitnesses of this early Jesus movement, writing down what happened. Okay, here's all about Jesus, and here's, okay, you saw him, you talked to him, all right. Wait, what happened? Rhoda? Oh, this is too good. I have to include this. Um, You know, I... I don't, know, I don't know why. The whole bit about Herod being eaten by worms is disturbing. But he is the guy who was single-handedly going to exterminate the Christian church in Jerusalem. He put James to death. He's going to put Peter to death as well. And then Jesus took care of it. So it's, I don't know, it's this convoluted story. But there's some comparisons here that I, I want to draw out. Let's see. Is this on? All right. Okay. On your sheet, if you have them, there's little notes. The first thing, it says compare and contrast. Oh, there we go. Peter versus James. It's interesting. These are both big three disciples. Back in the day, they were fishermen. When this wandering Jewish rabbi from the town of Nazareth comes by their lake and says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And they start following Jesus together. And they were there when Jesus raised uh, the girl from the dead. They were there on the Mount of Transfiguration when his glory was revealed. They were there when he was crucified. And they were there the day, three days later when he came back from the dead. They were there. Why does Peter get saved, get, get rescued from a maximum security prison, and James get beheaded with a sword? I mean, if you are the mother of James and John, how do you feel about the fact that God miraculously saved Peter, but not your boy? 
There's just no explanation given. There's also this interesting comparison between Peter and the church. Peter is asleep. The church is awake praying. But neither Peter nor the church is really aware of what's going on. When the angel shows up and is rescuing Peter, he thinks he's seeing a vision. And when Peter shows up in answer to the church's prayers at the gate, they think the servant girl's crazy. Neither one of them is is really awake to this situation. There's also an interesting contrast between Peter and Herod. Herod, in royal robes, giving an oration, people are crying out, the voice of a god, not a man. And he's like, yeah. And the angel of God's like, nope, whack, worms. Um, and, and, and God rebukes and strikes down someone who is proud and lofty. But for this contrast, you need a couple chapters of context. A few chapters ago, there was a Roman centurion that fell at Peter's feet to worship him. And Peter's immediate response was like, oh, no, 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 stand up. I'm just a man. I'm not God. I'm nothing special. Jesus, he's someone special. And there's one last contrast I want to highlight, and that's Jesus and Peter. Both of them are leaders of movements in Jerusalem that the local religious leader, religious authorities, um, the Sanhedrin, they're not too happy about. And both Peter and Jesus are unjustly arrested by a Roman official looking to do the Jews a favor. And they're both put into impossible circumstances. Peter in in maximum security, two chains, 16 guards round the clock, and Jesus was killed and buried in a tomb. So Jesus wins this contest, but neither one of those situations were looking very likely for something good to happen, and yet God rescued them. He raised Jesus from the dead. He saved Peter out of prison, and then both of them appear and are recognized by women who, in their excitement, go to tell other people who don't believe them. So there's, there's a lot of interesting parallels to the story. And this is, this is chapter 12, and this is a hinge point in a, a beautiful literary move. Peter goes off to hide, and that's the last that we see of him in the book of Acts, except for a few words that he speaks in chapter 15. Luke takes him off the scene because Luke's narrative is going to shift from God's work in Jerusalem to God's work among the nations. And so he's going to focus in on a character named Saul from here on out. But I have a few other observations just to share. One is that the early church is really confused. I don't know if you've walked, if you've known the story of the Bible for very long, but I grew up in church and I used to hear these lines of, oh, if only we were back in the days of the early church then we would be full of the Holy Spirit, there'd be miracles happening, and we'd just be in sync with what God is doing in the world. And going through the book of Acts, I'm happy to account, no, they were confused out of their mind. They were not prepared for what God was doing. He was just surprising them right right and left, and they were left to just figure it out. They weren't ready for Jesus to rise from the dead. They weren't ready for the Holy Spirit to come on Gentiles. Peter's asleep in prison, and the church doesn't believe it when their prayers are answered. Like, they are just not expecting these things to happen. So we're in good company. If life feels confusing and overwhelming to you, take heart. It has been that way for the people of God kind of from the beginning. Also, I I just want to point out that it's actually Jesus who's the hero of the story. Like, Peter is the main character, 
But he did nothing to save himself. It's the Lord Jesus who sent his angel and rescued Peter from prison. It's the Lord Jesus who sent his angel to strike down the guy who was killing the church. And remember at the beginning of Acts, the author Luke, he says, you know, in volume one, the gospel of Luke, I wrote about what Jesus began to say and do. Meaning this volume two, the book of Acts, is about what Jesus will continue to do. He is the main character from start to finish. He's the hero of this story. And the last thing to, to point out is judgment has begun with this whole Herod thing. And, and, and to highlight the significance of this, we've got to go back a ways. If you'll remember Luke chapters 3 and 4, we were introduced to two key figures, John the Baptist and Jesus. John the Baptist came announcing that God had a special plan, that he was keeping his promises by sending the Messiah to save all who follow him and to empower them with his Holy Spirit so they can live like him. John came and said, hey, someone's coming. He's so important, I'm not even worthy to untie the guy's shoes. I baptize you with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And he uses a lot of this judgment imagery, like get your act together now or else. When he shows up, it won't be pretty. But then Jesus shows up on the scene, and we're expecting judgment, and it doesn't come. In fact, when Jesus announces his ministry, he opens up Isaiah 61, and he's like, this is what God has told me to do. I'm anointed by the Spirit of God to give sight to the blind and preach good news to the poor and to announce the favorable year of the Lord's favor. And he shuts the book, rolls up the scroll, you know, hands it back. He left off mid-sentence. The very next line would read, and the day of vengeance of our God. And Jesus is like, nope, that's not why I'm here. Not yet. His first, he came to save sinners. He's going to bring judgment on the, on the world, just not yet. But now that he has been killed, buried, resurrected, and ascended, now judgment is beginning to certain people at certain times in certain places. So Ananias and Sapphira, Christians who lied to God and to the church, were judged. Herod, for his, his pride and not giving the glory to God, is judged instantly. We'll see it again in the ministry of Paul. Judgment at times has begun. And like at no point when Jesus was physically walking the earth did he look at his opponents and say, that's it, you're out, and they died. But now, it, now it's come. So I think what Luke is doing through this you know, crazy funny story is highlighting the fact that Jesus, who is Lord and judge, will take care of his church. Like, we were worried all the leadership was in one place, and all of a sudden, a very violent persecution begun. And Jesus took care of it. He saved his people. Jesus, who is Lord of all, who's the one who is in charge, who has authority to judge the world and struck down Herod, he's the guy who's taking care of his people. I think that's where I want to, to land this morning. But I'll, I'll rephrase it this way. I said we should wake up to the reality that Jesus is Lord and he's going to take care of things. See, Peter was asleep. He wasn't awake to the reality that he's going to die tomorrow and God might do something. And the church, they were awake praying, but they weren't really awake to the fact that God was answering their prayers right then and there. And of course, Herod wasn't really awake to the reality that Jesus is Lord. Herod's not. And he paid dearly for his mistake. I think we should wake up too.
So again, on your sheets, you have the word responding. I want you to cross it out and just write waking up there. How are we going to wake up to reality? And the first thing I want to say is just to know that Jesus is Lord. He's Lord. We're not. And it's something that we just need to know. And it's hard. Let me just own that I'm really bad at this. I have to continually remind myself of it. Because, uh, well, I mean, one, we live in America. We don't, we're not in Great Britain. We don't have a house of lords. So this word isn't something we normally use. And to say Jesus is president doesn't have the same ring to it. Jesus as senator, no. Jesus as governor, definitely not. Jesus as boss, okay. Jesus as king, sure. Like, what does it mean? Jesus is Lord. It means he's the guy in charge. He has full authority to do what he wants to do, and people will answer to him. Like, he's that guy. But the moment that we go, you know, out of our building on a Sunday morning, or perhaps even right now you're having a hard time, and you look at the chaos of the world and the mess that is our own lives, and even, even the struggle that we have just personally, and we feel like this is too big for a guy named Jesus. Maybe he's not in charge. Because how could these things happen? Like how could James have been killed and Peter been thrown into prison if Jesus was Lord? And yet he is. And he shows himself powerful, and he rescues Peter out of an impossible situation. Clearly, he's still in charge. But the struggle is, what happens when we don't know why? Why, God, are you allowing this world to look this way? Why are you letting all these things happen? Jesus, are you in charge? Are you still Lord or not? And we're left to wrestle with that. But we need to know it. Because if we don't know that Jesus is Lord, we're going to look for somewhere else, something else, to take care of our issues. We're going to look to our bank account, to our retirement account, to our nation's military. We're going to look to the economy or our own self-image or social media or, or just, you know, trying to make life comfortable. And all of these things will be things that we turn to to save us if we don't know Jesus is Lord. Now, that's what I want you to know. And then for some for some of us, we like to feel things. So here's how I want you to feel. I want you to feel conflicted, comforted, and just a little bit afraid. All right, let me explain what I mean. Conflicted. We don't always know what God's going to do or why he allows certain things to happen. And it's hard. Why, again, if you're James and John's mother, why did your son die and God rescue Peter? Why do some people get miraculous healings for their diseases and people that you love die? Like, why does that happen? And, and we say, we don't know. Like, he's in, Jesus is Lord, but it doesn't mean that I get it. My family's car, if you'll remember, they, it launched 70 feet. They missed a telephone pole by just like a foot or two. They almost ran straight into a telephone pole. My brother woke up, and he kept the steering wheel straight, and at some point when they were stopping or I don't know but he had such a firm hold of it and he'd been rock climbing so he was he was really strong at the time he he bent the steering wheel inward like shoved it in he was gripping it so tightly and after all that my family should be dead or members of my family but they're all fine they all walked away my sister has a small scar on her forehead cuz she you know got whacked and a couple trips to the chiropractor later, they were fine. 
Why did God save my family when, I mean, we've got three people in this church right now that are survivors of pretty severe motorcycle accidents, let alone the fact that you guys have loved ones that passed away in auto incidents. Why, God? And this story just highlights that tension. Why did James die? Why did the soldiers have to be killed? Because God rescued Peter. And we just, we don't know. And that tension is something that we just have to live with. But I want us to also feel comforted that Jesus is in charge. He's powerful and he's going to take care of the church. All right, let me, let me fix this. Jesus is in charge. Nice big letters. We have to know that. He's going to take care of his people corporately. And while I don't know specifically if I'm going to be okay or my wife or kids are going to be okay on a, this life, for eternity, they're just fine. You know, when you, when you follow the guy who came back from the dead, the game is a little bit different than it used to be. But the church is going to be just fine. No matter what happens here on the corner of 124th and Burnside, no matter what happens here in the nation of the United States of America or in across the world, Jesus is in charge. He's taking care of his people, and we can just trust him with that. Which means we don't have to be the savior of the church. Thank God. Because he hasn't. And I want us to be just a little bit afraid. All right? To quote C.S. Lewis, like, Aslan is not a tame lion, but he's good. Now, I, we went to the coast this weekend, and uh, my kids were at one point tumbled in the waves, and they didn't like it because the ocean is beautiful. It's relaxing. It's also dangerous, and you've got to respect it. And our last night there, I walked down to the beach in the dark, and I'm just standing there, and as the waves are coming in, I realize I can't tell how tall they actually are. And there's this primal fear that happens in my gut. I mean, at the end of the day, I think it came up to my little toe. Like, it was fine, but just in the darkness, I couldn't tell, and I went, this is scary. And I think when we see Jesus act and judge people like Herod, when we see him do these amazing things like rescue Peter out of like a, a fortress, it should make us really comforted and just a little bit afraid because the guy has teeth, if you know what I mean. And you're just really glad that he's on your side. Like this story highlights what, what Gamaliel said back in Acts 5 when he said, you guys should leave these Christians alone. If this is of man, it'll fail. If it's of God, you won't be able to overcome it, and you just might be found to be fighting against God. It's exactly what we see. So, be comforted. That's the one I want you to camp on. Conflicted, just a little bit afraid. Or if I was going to rewrite it, I'd say this. Be comforted as we live in the tension of life with a healthy fear of God. Like, this should affect the way that we live. Like, when I get into my car, I have a healthy fear that if I'm not careful, I can kill other people or ruin my life. But... This is, this is a good thing. It's a size of blessing. We should have a healthy fear of God, sit in the tension that we can't resolve, that God's in charge and the world does not go the way that we think it should. But Jesus is Lord and he's taking care of his people. And then I want us to act. I want us to pray expectantly because the proper response to persecution is fervent prayer. The church got it right. To, to gather around and seek God expectantly they, I don't think they expected God to actually come through, or at least they were caught off guard when he did. But what if we just kept heckling God 
until he came through for us as a people together. And Jesus said, he's like, be like that, be like a, you know, a widow who just keeps heckling the judge until she gets justice. Like, just go after God and don't let up until he answers. And that's, that's how I think we should respond. So a couple reflection questions. In what circumstances am I struggling to believe that Jesus is Lord? Where do I have a hard time believing that God loves me, that he's actually good? And do I expect God to act when we pray? As I say we because I think there's something, well, there is. There's something special when the people of God gather together that is just can't be replicated by ourselves in our closet or as we're driving along on the way to work. When we gather together as the people, God's presence is specially known. Now for me, Acts has been really good because 2020 was a rough year. 2021 has also been a rough year. And I don't know what God's going to do. I've watched him change my life. I've watched him change the life of this church. And I'm looking around and I'm seeing that this community is changing. And it's it's scary. I don't know what's going to happen. And being reminded that Jesus is Lord and that he's going to take care of his church and that he's in charge has been of great comfort to me. And there's tensions, and we've lost some people this year, and that's been really difficult. I don't know why that's happened. And Jesus is Lord. And I have this healthy fear of God, and I'm trying to do what he's commanded me to do, but I'm more and more as we're going through this series, I'm feeling comforted because he is Lord, and he's in charge, and he's taking care of his church. Which means it's not my job to save my family. It's not my job to save this church. It's certainly not my job to save this community. I'm going to do my part. I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask God to intervene. And we're going to do what we can. I mean, don't get me wrong. We're going to do what we can. We've got to leave it in his hands. And so, I mean, just this awesome story this morning has been of great personal comfort to me. And so I'm excited now. I don't have the answer. I, I, I'm still in the waiting expectantly to see what is God going to do in my family's life, in this church's life, and in the community around us. But I'm excited because Jesus is still Lord, and I'm convinced he's got a really good plan. And, and whether, you know, and like most, you know, good plans and most good stories, um, you know, they make for great stories afterwards, but they're kind of miserable experiences going through it. Maybe that's his, I, I, I don't know, I don't know what he's doing, but he is Lord and God, and he's taking care of his people, and that's the reality that I want to wake up to, and I keep waking up to it, and I want us to wake up to it day by day. So whatever it is, however dark the situation seems, there is no situation that is so broken, so hopeless, so dark, so dirty, that the Lordship of Jesus cannot rescue There's no situation that we can encounter where the majesty and splendor and goodness of God cannot come in and bring redemption. You think things are hopeless, but they're not. We serve the God that takes situations that have absolutely no exit for us, and he somehow makes a way. Because he's in charge, and he's good, and he loves us.
And I want us to rest in that fact because God so loved the world. He gave his son that anyone who believes in him would not perish but would have eternal life. He loves us. Jesus is in charge. May we wake up to that reality today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, gracious and good God, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for how you have taken care of my family, for how you've taken care of this church. Thank you for being in charge for the way that you have saved us and rescued us and provided for our needs. And okay, God, if we're, if we're really honest, we take a look around and sometimes things feel a bit overwhelming and the situation seems a bit bleak and we're, we're tempted to believe that in all of this chaos, you're not actually in charge and this isn't part of your good plan. Father, help us to wake up to the reality of who you are, to trust that your son is still Lord of the world and that all this that is happening is not beyond his power to save, that somehow this is part of the story that you are letting play out and in the end you are going to rescue your people, you're going to redeem this world, you're going to bring justice to the oppressed and you're going to be glorified and we are so excited to see that. Father, thank you for the story of Scripture. Let us walk in it faithfully. Amen.